In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dan. Hey, everybody. This is our first show where we disagree substantially on the topic at hand. We will be discussing atheism. I, Evan, am a Catholic, and Dan is an atheist. Now, Daniel, uh, why don't we begin this episode with a prayer? I think that's only appropriate. Go ahead. Go ahead. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater nostr quies in celis sanctificeto nomen tuum, eveniant regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua succut in celo et in terra, panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis horie, et dimite nobis debita nostra succut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationum sed libera nos amala omen. St. Thomas, pray for us. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. I couldn't have said it better myself, honestly. <laughs> Beautiful. Incredible. So today... Um, We'll be talking about, like I said, atheism and its effects on individuals and society at large. First, we'll be defining what atheism is. And then why, why is Daniel still a cringy atheist in the current year? Good question. <laughs> what are the origins of atheism and what is its journey through history? Some notable atheists. Then we'll have a mini debate on are humans born atheist or do they become atheists? What are some notable attempts at creating an atheist society? Why do some societies abandon religion? What is to gain? And we can demonstrate if widespread atheism, intentional or otherwise, is bad news. And what is Christianity doing about the rise of atheism in our modern world? Okay, first let's define what atheism is. Some atheists assert that atheism is simply a lack of belief in God. But I would assert that this is not true. Atheism is the position that affirms the, that affirms the non-existence of God. It proposes positive disbelief rather than mere suspension of belief. More specifically, it is a direct answer to the question, does God exist? To answer no is atheism. To answer yes is theism. To answer I don't know or I cannot know, those are indicate agnosticism. Strong agnosticism is, I don't know if God exists, and neither can you. Weak agnosticism is, I don't know if God exists, but you may be able to have a justified belief. Oddly enough, there are different types of atheists. Uh, new atheists, like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and the late Christopher Hitchens, the four horsemen, if you will. <laughs> now, I read that um, Dinesh D'Souza came up with that term. Oh, he called them yeah, the poor appar horsemen? apparently. Yeah. Oh, Dinesh. Good old Dinesh. <laughs> um, there are popular figures who are or were highly critical of religion, but they do not add any real new philosophical positions to atheism. Dawkins, specifically, uh, borrows many arguments from David Hume, an English philosopher who contributed to skepticism and naturalism in the 18th century. The new atheists are noteworthy for their obnoxious tone towards religion, extreme confidence that God does not exist, and prominence in culture. New atheism experienced a surge in the 2000s, especially among young men 
uh, especially young white men, but it seemed to fizzle out. It has been theorized that their tone and beliefs became popular due to 9-11 because religion was used as a reason to kill thousands. That makes sense. I think it's a pretty good theory. Mm -hmm. The movement has died out largely because it is also critical of Islam. It's what you might call consistent. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit too much... uh, uh, intersection right there. I guess uh, they said, whoa, whoa, hold on. Uh, you can criti- criticize this religion, but not this other one. Yeah, you can criticize Christianity, but when you talk about Judaism and especially Islam. Yeah, that's a no-go. No-go. Uh, so it's kind of ironic, but the progressive movement doesn't tolerate their bigotry. <laughs> but enough for that. Uh, then there are friendly atheists like uh, William Rowe, who introduced the term in 1979. Uh, They believe that some people are justified in believing that God exists, even if the friendly atheist himself does not believe in God. They're cool with religious people being religious. And there are even people uh, who call themselves pro-God atheists, and I consider myself one of those. Uh, You can lump me into that group. Uh, Who, they don't really believe in God, but believe that the idea of God is a good one and would like to believe in something like that, but they can't rationalize it or prove it at the moment. Uh, John Schellenberg is credited with coining that term. Anti-God atheists, by contrast, believe the very idea of God is bad, a negative influence on man and society, and they actively hope that God is not real. The uh, the ideology is best represented by the Freedom From Religion Foundation. The FFRF actively works to rid the public sphere of religious influence, saying that Someone's religious beliefs should not guide their public policy opinions at all. This includes stances on morality. They are the kind of people who say, get your morality out of government. However, in our opinion, they have their own morality that they want to enforce, have enforced by the government. Okay, so enough of definitions for now. <laughs> so, uh, Daniel, why, why in hell are you an atheist? Great question. I am so glad you asked. Um... Why am I an atheist? Really, I guess it comes down to just a an in, inability to accept certain things about that belief. Uh, I don't believe in God, not because I, I hate the idea or I hate religion or something like that. I just simply cannot find a reason that satisfies me to believe. And I know that's easier for some people, obviously, than others, but that's my personal opinion that um, it's very difficult to find something that can convince me. I guess that's the simplest way I could put it. What say you to that? Does that answer the question, you think? It kind of answers it, but I would like to delve deeper, obviously. Sure, sure, sure. Um, maybe, uh, Maybe you could start off by defining God. Oh, yeah, I guess that's a definition we missed. Yeah, I think uh, I think that that's <laughs> definitely important because you can't really talk about the, the non-believers without talking about the believers and what they are actually believing. So, Giving me softball questions here. Well, no, we got to ease joking, into it. I'm joking. <laughs> All right, so there are a few ways to go about this. One is the generic monotheistic God model. Another is to go more specific into how each religion views God mm-hmm. specifically. Uh, So based on St. Thomas Aquinas, God can be defined as the first mover, the uncaused cause, the necessary being, perfect in the intelligent designer. 
that's based on the five ways that we'll touch upon later. So he uses all of those phrases in that? Mm, no, he doesn't use those exact phrases. Those are summaries of each way. Basically. Oh, okay. okay. We'll, we'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. But God can also be characterized through his divine simplicity, which ironically is, pro- is the most complex topic in, in Catholic thought. Well, it, it, right off the bat, it sounds it it uh, it does sound like it probably is complex because how can someone, some being who is so large and presumably all powerful, all knowing, be, uh, be even described as simplicity or, or or simple? So yeah, that confuses me just right off the bat well, hearing it. I'll define it, but you you raised a good point that I'd forgotten about. You you can also say God is all knowing, all uh, omnibene- omnibenevolent, which mm-hmm. is all good. Yeah. And all-powerful, omnipotent. Um, but going on to divine simplicity, uh, that means that God is without parts and is not a composite being. God is outside of space, outside of time, and has no parts that are distinct from himself. Interesting. Yeah, there is uh, much more that couldn't be said on this topic, but that's a brief overview of what most monotheists see, uh, see as God except uh, most Protestants do deny divine simplicity. Now, why is that? They, they see, see it as a contradiction with what the Bible describes as God. Mm. It's like William Lane Craig is probably the most well-known Protestant apologist today, and he, he's against it. He thinks that it just goes against the biblical descriptions of God himself. Oh, okay. So you, he's more taking it from like a literary standpoint. Like he's looking at the actual words and saying, okay, this is how he's described. This is the good book. And then he compares it to this other teaching and he says these these don't mix, essentially. Basically. Okay. Okay. See, I, I think going right back to your original question of, of why are you, why in the heck, why in the hell are you an atheist? I think uh, it can kind of be summed up right, uh, right in, in what you said a minute ago. Uh, those... Those um, arguments brought up by Aquinas and others, um, they just have never struck me as as convincing. I guess you could say I, I I would take issue with almost all of them. You know, not just to fight them, uh, but simply because they they to me don't necessarily make as much sense. So I, I'll say that that much. Well, that's more a definition of God than an argument. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I guess I'd say I would take issue with with some of those definitions and say, well, th- those are questionable. So I'll, I'll put it like that. Yeah, you probably disagree with the outside of space time. Yeah, and that that will come up in a in a debate later on in the show. Yeah, I was going to point out, um, it's kind of a contradiction. Not kind of. It's definitely a contradiction to be a pro God atheist, and that you're advocating for something. You're advocating other people do something that you're not willing to do yourself. Mm. Yeah, I can see how you would say that's hypocritical, and I'm not going to sit here and say it's not. I never claim to not be a hypocrite. Um, I think that if you believe that, uh, like I believe, that God is a force for good and that religion, let's just say religion, religion is a force for good. You can look at the outcomes of various religions and say, okay, let's compare that to outcomes of societies without religion or who have banned religion. And when you compare the two, you can see that there is a night and day difference, as we will get to later on in the show. Right. Um, so just from a practical standpoint, religion versus non-religion, 
that's it's almost not even worth arguing. You have much more prosperity and human happiness and uh, human life on the side of allowing people to have religion and even advocating for people to have religion versus trying to remove it from the human experience. So I look at it as almost, and some people might be offended by this, but I look at it as, as a tool. You know, uh, religion is a is a a tool that keeps society together. I think we've even described it in this episode in the notes as a glue. And I think that is a perfect uh, way to talk about it. It's a glue that holds society together. It allows societies to uh, rally around shared ideas and even crosses and transcends cultures, um, which helps people survive. At the end of the day, it's a survival tool. Okay, do you, um, going back to our definition earlier about what an atheist is, sure. do you actually consider yourself an atheist or more of an agnostic? Do you take the positive uh, disbelief or just suspension of belief? I personally believe that God does not exist. So you're taking the positive? Positive, yes. yes. However, I will concede that you cannot prove a negative. You know, flying spaghetti monster, classic example. You can't prove that it doesn't exist can't prove Santa Claus doesn't exist, I guess, if you wanted to come up with silly examples. But at the end of the day, you can't. You can't can't prove something does not exist. That's why it's called disbelief. Yeah, that's why it's called disbelief. Yeah. And, and, and to me, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later also, from my perspective, on the outside looking in, religion is about faith. It's about feeling. It's about a sense of connection, a sense of family, or a sense of community. And when you begin to apply a scientific or logical uh, framework around it, I think it breaks down and it loses its, its purpose and its value. I think that it is there for people to satisfy a side of themselves that is inherently it's not I'm saying that it's illogical. It's just simply not in the within the realm of reason or or human understanding. And if people want to try to tap into that and they want to satisfy that that part of themselves that wants to feel something, uh, feel the presence of a higher power, feel hope, feel uh, like they are the protagonist in this story of the universe, then that's what it's there for. It's not there to prove any theories. It's not there to, um, you know, to make any any uh, laws. I disagree with your out, or with your um, conclusion, but we, I will address it later, so we can move on for now. Oh, okay. So the origins of atheism and its journey through history. Let's talk about that. Atheism has always existed, though in ancient times it was not as sharply defined and not as clearly branded and commercialized as it is today. Let's be honest; it's very commercialized in 2021. The earliest examples of atheism can be found in the East. Taoism, Jainism, and Buddhism are not exclusively theistic. They have elements of superstition and belief in spiritual beings. But in many ways, these philosophies mainly focus on the relationship of man to nature and truth and focus on achieving an ideal way of life. They are more earthly. Contrast that with the relationship that followers of the Abrahamic religions have with their god, not gods, because it is supposedly the same God updating the terms of service, if you will, the terms of service agreement. Do you accept? Yes or no? It's a very complicated uh, terms of service agreement, but if you follow that religion, you accept it. 
in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. God actively intervenes in human affairs on a regular basis and commands humans to follow certain rules, codes, etc. Atheism in the West is a different story. Religion served as the basis for the legitimacy of the Greek and Roman states. So questioning this legitimacy usually didn't end well, and this tradition continued in Europe until the Enlightenment era. Diagoras of Melos poked fun at the Eleusinian mysteries. These were very secret and very sacred rites performed by members of the cult of Demeter and Persephone, and he was sentenced to death in Athens, but he managed to escape. Euripides uh, was known to express criticism of the gods and religion in general through characters in his plays. Aristophanes did likewise. Epicurus was the first thinker historians consider uh, to be a philosophical atheist in the Western sense. His teachings focused on the search for natural explanations for the workings of the universe, and the intended goal of his philosophy was to guide individuals and nations toward happiness and peace through science and knowledge. An Epicurean from the first century B.C. named Lucretius suggests in his work On the Nature of Things, that's a very explicit title, by the way, that the afterlife does not exist, and if the gods exist, then they don't care about humans. Uh, Democritus theorized that all people, things, and events were the product of the interactions between and the transformations of atoms, not the will of the gods. This idea was uh, very revolutionary for its time, and it held up surprisingly well, especially when you consider how little the Greeks knew about atomic theory and particle physics. Then there was Socrates, our man. Maybe the most famous quote-unquote atheist of antiquity, although by many accounts he was not an atheist at all. It's true that he was sentenced to death in Athens for the crime of refusing to acknowledge the existence of the gods, but Socrates never explicitly denied their existence. In fact, the entire reason uh, he became the avid question-asker that we know and love today is that the oracle at Delphi claimed that he was the wisest man on earth. Socrates' core belief that he was not very wise contradicted his fear that the oracle may be right, so he set out on a quest to prove her wrong. If Socrates was indeed an atheist, why did he give the oracle's proclamation even a moment's thought? Nevertheless, he died by drinking poison in 399 BC, but his legacy of bold skepticism lives on. I think it's unfair to put Socrates in this <laughs> category. A little bit. I mean, yeah. you do have to, I think, acknowledge that he did so much questioning and so much criticism that it's like borderline atheism, right? No, I wouldn't say it's borderline atheism. There's no doubt he believed in the divine, the gods. Mm-hmm. I don't think so because uh, I read a, I read one of his di- – Plato's dialogues. I'm trying to remember which. But he, the whole thing is talking about love and – its relationships to the divine. He's talking about like nymphs all around him and stuff. Hmm. And then also in the Republic, uh, book two, he almost outlines his version of divine simplicity. Really? Yeah. I was really surprised when I came across that because he, he was criticizing like the Iliad and the Odyssey for portraying the gods in a negative way, like up to like doing bad things. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about what God is and isn't. Like God can only do good things. The oh. gods can only do – the gods don't have bodies. You know, so they're only uh, – Like ethereal? They're only ethereal. So them coming down and seducing women by becoming swans is just <laughs> – he said that was – he was mad at the writers and said, come on, you can't 
you can't blaspheme against the gods like that. Yeah. Because he had some form of divine simplicity. Hmm. Okay, so he even okay, so he even criticized that and was trying to defend this idea of of the gods yeah. being more perfect than they're portrayed in um in the Odyssey. He thought the books about the gods should be censored and you know either corrected or just burned basically so that Whoa. so that people like the the children don't get bad ideas about what the gods are. Anyways. Hmm. So I, I disagree with him being in this section. He does have skepticism, but I don't think it's fair to call it atheism. But then, at you know, we jump to the ninth century. There was an Islamic scholar named Ibn al-Rawandi who denied the validity of Muhammad's prophecies. Surprisingly, he was not beheaded. <laughs> not surprising, consider as the religion of peace. Religion of peace, Allahu Akbar. Yeah. <laughs> Later in medieval Europe, St. Thomas Aquinas laid out atheist counter-arguments to his own proofs for God, God's existence, which he did to all his questions. He did, like, ca- counter-arguments to try to disprove his own position. Mm-hmm. Um, he was obviously not an atheist, and he only used these, those counter-arguments as a platform to explain his own reasoning and to counter objections. Here were two, uh, Thomas, two of Thomas's theoretical reasons that God didn't exist. From Part 1, Question 2, Article 3 of the Summa. Objection 1. It seems that God does not exist, because if one of two contraries be infinite, the other would be altogether destroyed. But the word God means that he is infinite goodness. If, therefore, God existed, there would be no evil discoverable, but there is evil in the world. Therefore, God does not exist. Objection 2. Further, it is superfluous to suppose that what can be accounted for by a few principles has been produced by many. But it seems that everything we see in the world can be accounted for by other principles, supposing God did not exist. For all natural things can be reduced to one principle, which is nature, and all voluntary things can be reduced to one principle, which is human reason or will. Therefore, there is no need to suppose God's existence. No, I just, I would like to pause and say I just love Aquinas and his style. So objection one can be summarized as the problem of evil. And objection two can be summarized as science or free will explains everything and God is unnecessary. And I believe that this encompasses almost every argument against God's existence, although I'm sure you have a few later on. But before, before we do that, let me give his two replies to the two objections. So his reply to objection one, which is the problem of evil. As Augustine says, Since God is the highest good, he would not allow any evil to exist in his works, unless his omnipotence and goodness were such as to bring good even out of evil. This is part of the infinite goodness of God that he should allow evil to exist and out of it produce good. Now his reply to objection two, which is the science explains everything argument. Since God, or since nature, works for a determinate end under the direction of a higher agent, whatever is done by nature must needs be traced back to God as to its first cause. So also, whatever is done voluntarily must also be traced back to some higher cause other than human reason or will, since these can change or fail. For all things that are changeable and capable of defect must be traced back to an immovable and self-necessary first principle, as was shown in the body of the article. Aquinas responds to the two objections with his famous five ways. We won't go into that in detail today, but each can be summarized as follows, respectively. First mover argument from causation, contingency argument, argument from degree, and teleological argument. By the way, Dawkins in The God Delusion 
devotes only a few pages to debunking the five ways. Mm, sad. Sad. He strawmans the arguments and completely misunderstands their meaning. This is probably because he has absolutely no training in philosophy. Daniel, can you think of any atheist arguments which do not fall under the problem of evil or science explains everything in God is unnecessary, not including arguments against a specific religion? Uh, I think so, or at least I'm going to try. Uh, Much like Dawkins, I am not classically trained in philosophy, but I will give it a go nonetheless, because if there's one thing that atheists love to talk about, it's it's God. (laughs) While they wear their fedoras and, and... drink smoothies made of Mountain Dew and Doritos. So uh, I'd like to just start with uh, a quote, a little bit random. It's not an argument, but it's just a quote that I saw in House of Leaves. It says, uh, why did God create a dual universe? So he might say, be not like me. I am alone. And it might be heard. That was just from House of Leaves by uh, Daniel Lewski. So I just like that. Is that saying... That we are, and we, it might be heard, and we become evil, like we choose evil because God is the good. I didn't, I don't really understand what he's trying to say. Uh, I think that's on purpose. It's it's open to interpretation, like that entire book and everything, every little piece in it. Um, so I think what you could say there is that yeah, he creates a dual universe that is both good and evil because he is all good, and he wanted it to be different than himself. I mean, I don't think it's wrong to suppose that maybe God's bored, that maybe <laughs> being alone and being the only being of his kind would get a little lonely, and maybe he just wanted some um, something interesting. You know, he's, he is the creator. He can make anything he wants, and so why not make something different than yourself, right? Anything remaking yourself would just be um, uneventful, I guess. Maybe that's what that quote means. If you want to read the next one, I think they're related enough for me to address both of them. Okay, sure. The question that kind of piggybacks off of that is, uh, why must God be bound by duality of good and evil? If God created reality, he could have made it in his own image only good. So why is there good and evil? Okay, I think I think it's a mistake to say that God created a dual universe of good and evil. That's kind of a, that is not, it's not kind of, it is the heresy of Gnosticism. Okay, explain that to me. Gnosticism, is, it, it takes a few forms. But basically, it's that a good being created the spiritual world and a bad being created the material world, which is evil, and the spiritual world is good. Uh, Similarly, you could, some of them were saying, like, a good being created the spirit, um, created good, and a bad being created all the things that are evil. And some people were like, oh, the God of the Old Testament is the bad being, and the God of the New Testament is the good being. So it... It was rejected all the time by Christian councils early on in the church. Um, so it's it's a mistake to say that God creates evil. Instead, evil is the absence of good. Oh, okay. So interesting. So he only has created good, and anything else has been has come into existence because of other forces, man or the devil? Like free will. Okay. So you would just... Not necessarily sidestep, but you you, you you further explain it by saying that it is not – he didn't actively create it, but he passively allowed it to come into existence. And I guess yeah. that's what we're getting at. Which goes back to Aquinas' uh, first objection 
Yeah, first objection, like, why does God allow evil? Because he's infinite goodness. Why wouldn't he just snuff out the evil? Mm-hmm. And it, as, a, as he says in his reply that it's uh, his omnipotence and goodness were such as to bring good even out of evil. So even though evil exists, it may be bad to us, maybe uh, a challenge to us. God is trying to make good out of evil. So it's well, usually God not, is making good out of evil. Often. Is making good out of evil. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting counter argument there. My second uh, issue, which harkens back to the very beginning of this uh, episode, is that all the things which exist in reality have uh, finite measurements. You and me. Everything has a finite measurement. Uh, if God exists within the universe spatially, he must be finite if he exists within the universe. And if he exists outside of the universe spatially, well, that can't be true because there is no space outside of space for him to exist in and no time before time for him to exist in. At best, God could only be very large and very powerful and very wise but not infinitely so. So he could be as old as the universe. He could be as big as the universe. Uh, he could know all that is within it, but he could not be more than it. And if he is limited by the size and the age of the universe, then he is part of the universe, and the universe is prime, and God is secondary. That would be my uh, argument. Yeah, this is a very complicated topic, of course, but I think it w- he's making assumptions which I wouldn't agree with and that he can't exist outside of the universe and he can't exist out of time. I mean, we're just going to have to disagree on that, that it's impossible to do so. That's his assumption. And see, that's where it comes back for me to the be-all, end-all of religion, which is faith. It's what do you accept? At, at the very bedrock of it, you have to accept something. I personally accept that the religion, I mean, I'm sorry, that the universe is as big as it gets. The universe is, is what it is, and we may not understand it fully yet, but I believe that we can. And um, the, the religion, I keep saying religion, the universe is enough for me. I don't believe that there has to be something that created it, a thing or a person, a being that created it. It just simply is. So do you believe in like that there was no beginning of time? Are you... What's it called? Um, well, by definition, time. Yeah, by definition, there cannot be a before time. If time is a, a characteristic of the universe, then there cannot be a before that characteristic exists, because that characteristic is how what we use to describe everything in our reality. Same thing with space. You know, space is all around us. It is the medium in which we exist. Time is a medium in which we exist. We cannot explain our universe in any other terms other than the terms of our universe by definition. If we existed in some other place, we could explain it based on those terms. But because the universe is all that we see and feel and experience, uh, that's the only, those are the only terms we can use to, to explain our existence. So you don't believe in Big Bang Theory, you just believe in an infinite universe, always been here, always will be here? Uh, I don't believe that it has always been the same. Obviously, there have been changes, and we can observe strange things going on out in space that have led us to believe that, okay, things weren't always the way they are now. Galaxies had to form. Stars had to form. So the universe has been in a constant state of flux. Uh, However, 
I don't think it's possible to know what happened before that. Because in, in as far as we know now, the universe and everything in it existed in a very, very small, hot ball of mass and energy. And that's it. It was all the matter and the energy in one spot. And what happened before that, who knows? Because that was the entire universe there. But how did that come about? That's an interesting question. And it may be an unanswerable one. I will give you that. That one answer may that one question may be unanswerable because there is no way for us to get a measurement of that. That's the problem. Is that it it if everything we are if everything we see right now uh, was in a very, very small, tight ball, how are you going to get any sort of measuring device to measure that, to, to tell what, what was going on at that time? Because, A, it happened 13 billion years ago, and we can only tell what has happened up to that point because of the residual, so to speak, vibrations that are going on in the universe right now. But as to what happened before that, it's unknowable because you cannot measure it. There is no tool within the universe that can measure something like that. Yeah, but I mean, matter just doesn't come from nowhere. Everything comes from something. Ex nihilo nihilo, and out of nothing comes nothing. I'm not saying that there wasn't a, a constant. Uh, See, you're again. You're you're saying that there was an infinite. Like matter is infinite, essentially. Energy is infinite. Well, there is. No, I would say that there is a finite amount of matter and energy in our universe that has constantly changed location and moved around. And who knows, maybe the, maybe what we experience as reality, as the universe, maybe this expansion and contraction has happened who knows how many times, right? Because time is just a facet of that ball of matter and energy. The same time and the same space that exists right here exists must have existed in that ball. And so if it's expanding and contracting, I wish you could see a video component. I'm just expanding and contracting my hand like this over and over again. This could have happened who knows how, how long, forever, right? It must yeah. have because that's all time and space inside that ball. So you're saying that time is infinite, that there was never a beginning. It was always here in some way. Sure. Is that what you're saying? I guess we would have to conclude that, that the space has always been here and the time has always been here. So you're concluding that something is coming from nothing. or you're, It had to come from somewhere at some point. Okay. And that brings me to the last point, which would be <laughs> that if God had to create this, then who created God? I'm saying that my universe is infinite. You're saying your God is infinite. We're both making the same argument just about two different things. The difference being that we both accept the universe exists. We both live in the universe. So at a certain point, you do have to accept that my, my universe exists because my universe is your universe. Now, you say that there is a reason why our universe came into being. I simply just stop there. I say the universe always was and always will be, and that's good enough to, for me personally. I don't think it's possible, but, well, to respond to your who who created God argument, God is by definition uncreated. So it's like asking if you have an unmarried friend, it, who's he's a bachelor by definition, and you might say, yeah, you're unmarried, but who, you're a bachelor, but who's your wife? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very accurate. That's, that's the same question. And I think it's the same question about the universe, you know? But it's by definition is 
it defeats it's, itself. Like I'm defining God as the uncreated being. Okay, fair so enough. It's, I, know, I'm 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 defining the universe as the uncreated being as well. Well, my my uncreated being is better than your uncreated being. <laughs> you know, a related argument that you didn't have here uh, is. I'm sure I, I missed a lot of them. Yeah. Really good ones. Yeah. Well, isn't the one I'm about to say is not a good one. But I'm, it's a, I'm a finite being, by the way, in case yeah. you didn't know. So I miss things sometimes. You're a contingent being, yeah. according to the third way. You're not a necessary <laughs> being. Anyways, a related argument to who created God is, oh, um, you're an atheist when it comes to all the other gods that people have believed in. I just go one god further than you. Yes. Which yeah. is, it, it's one of the most cringy arguments. Yeah, it's been done to death. Uh, I don't think anybody has ever, like, it's one of those you can't really even argue against. Like, it's just a simple fact. It's just stating a fact. Like, yes, there are beliefs and belief systems that people don't believe in. Ricky Gervais, Ricky Gervais has made this point. That's why I bring it up. It's not just nobody's on the Internet talking about it. Yeah, it's famous people. Well, how would you respond? Yeah, You are an atheist to, like, 99% of world religions. Right. Yeah. If I said that, how would you respond? I mean, it's true that I don't believe in the other gods. Uh, they don't exist, in my opinion. But to say it's it's like a ba- the bachelor example again. Is there a difference between a bachelor and someone who's married to one woman? Is there a difference? Would you say that, that someone might say, like, uh, let's just say the atheist is a bachelor in this case. Okay. And he's saying, what, you're, you're married to only one woman. I just go one woman further than you it we're basically the same thing i you don't you don't marry all the other women in the world oh i see what you're saying okay yeah so even though yeah he just goes one more woman than you or one more wife than you but there's something just completely different about having zero wives versus one versus one wife i would agree i would agree that there is something inherently different um does it change your mind if i go back to the argument of i just i just believe that the universe is infinite that at least it's it's time and it's it's space or let's just say it's time then again it's all constantly expanding so who knows but time definitely uh could be infinite it could have always been here are you going back to the previous question no i'm just i'm just using that as an example of does that change your um does that change the wife analogy you know Um, if you say that that we're kind of the same in that i'm i'm saying this is infinite. You're saying your God's infinite. Isn't that kind of saying the same thing? In a way, aren't we both married? No, I, I don't think it breaks down by bringing the inf- infinite into it. Because hmm. it's still a huge difference between not being married and being married to one woman. And it's not like I just, like the bachelor just goes one woman further than you. Yeah. I guess you're saying that the, there's a big difference between believing that the universe is, is infinite and then believing the universe has a nature. But then God created it. Yeah, Big I'd difference. agree. Okay. That's, hey, agree to disagree. All right, let's move on to uh, the rest of our history of uh, atheists and atheism, jumping forward in time to the Enlightenment era with Spinoza, who argued that God did not directly influence the events of the world. He believed instead that the reality uh, that we live in could be described in terms of natural laws. Now, this was radical. Uh, at the time, but knowing what we know about the rapid pace of scientific advancement that was well underway with the works of Galileo, Newton, Copernicus, Spinoza actually turned out to be a trendsetter as the Western world slowly moved farther away from religion. 
in the early 18th century, a French a Catholic priest named Jean Meslier posthumously published a work called, are you ready for this? Incredible title right here. Thoughts and Feelings of Jean Meslier. Clear and evident demonstrations of the vanity and falsity of all the religions of the world. Now that is a title. That is a real title right there. I don't think it's catchy, though. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it's just impressive. It's really impressive. It's way better than On the Nature of Things. Wow, real specific, huh? He's covering all the things. I guess so, yeah, he really is. This was probably the first uh, modern written work dedicated to promoting full-on atheism. This guy had a problem if his job was to be a priest and then he's writing this book. I mean, <laughs> he, he moonlights he as an have, atheist. <laughs> he must have had some deep existential problems like doing being a priest every day and then writing this when he gets home. Yeah, I, he was probably not the priest you want no, at your church. No, no, I don't think so. The French Revolution now saw Christianity abandoned and replaced by warring factions such as the cult of reason and its nemesis, the cult of the supreme being. Atheism ramped up in the 19th century, and with new arguments uh, and new people, we see uh, well-known names like uh, Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. During this time, Charles Bradlaugh became the first open atheist to be elected to British Parliament. In the 20th century, Nietzsche's predictions came true uh, that the death, quote-unquote, of God would lead to tragedy as man embraced nihilism, and millions of human lives were lost in two world wars. Tens of millions more were lost during the rise of totalitarian states, which purged religion from within their borders. Maoist China, uh, Nazi Germany, and Soviet Russia are the most obvious examples, but we'll get to more of that later. In 1967, Albania became the world's first official atheist state as the country formally banned all religious observance. However, the freedom of religion was restored in 1991 after the Soviet Union collapsed. Now, in 2021, atheism is totally mainstream. It's still painted as fringe and rebellious by many people, but that's only because victimhood is Western man's new currency. In reality, uh, atheism, or at the very least indifference to religion, is more and more common. Here are some facts compiled by Pew Research from studies conducted within the last decade. Between 2009 and 2019, the United States saw a 2% increase in the number of adults who identified as atheists, from 2% to 4%, and saw another 2% increase in the number of people who identify as agnostic, from 3% up to 5%. Numbers are much higher in Europe, as you might intuitively know. Surveys suggest that adults identifying as atheists make up 15% of the population in France, 16% of Danes, 19% of, uh, of Belgium, and a staggering 25% in the Czech Republic. Now, Czech Republic, I think, is the most, most atheist country in the world. Oh, sounds like it. Maybe China or something, but in Europe, it's definitely the most. And uh, we didn't include it. I don't know the exact numbers, but that's only atheists. So that's not including agnostics or people who just don't identify with any religion or don't practice their religion. Mm -hmm. in, in those countries, it's often over half of people that don't practice any religion. Yeah, it is, it is staggering. Yep. And according to the 2014 Religious Landscape Study conducted by Pew Research, uh, about 68% of atheists in the U.S. are men, with the median age being 34. Caucasians make up 78% of American atheists, and they're... 
uh, 1.5 times more likely to have a college degree than the average American, and they tend to be more closely associated with the Democratic Party. Imagine that. Imagine that. Definitely goes against your your intuition. <laughs> now, religious nuns, and I'm not talking about the ones in in no, black. No, not Mother Teresa. <laughs> not Mother Teresa. Nuns is an N-O-N-E-S. Uh, are people who don't identify with any religion. We're about 23% of Americans, according to that same religious landscape study, about 16% of which were classified as nothing in particular. Now, I was confused about this. I couldn't find out much about what nothing in particular means, but I, I know it means it's not atheist nor agnostic because those were other categories. So I guess they don't practice any religion, but they haven't taken a stance on the existence of God. But so I was they also, have no beliefs at all, I guess. But I was also confused because I don't know was a separate answer. So I don't know what these people are doing. Like one out of every six Americans, just nothing in particular, man. Just chilling. It's kind of embarrassing. It, it is pathetic, actually. Just take a stand. Yeah. Flip a just, coin, geez. Just look, look into this for like a day and figure it out. Yeah. It's pretty important. And uh, when asked about what brings meaning to their lives, atheists responded with money or hobbies to a greater degree than Christians. Ironic considering episode four. Uh, (laughs) But the answer, family, was slightly less common among atheists than among the general public. And lastly, a 2019 survey revealed that 71% of American atheists believe that the decline of religious influence in society is a good thing. We'll talk now about some notable atheists. We've already covered some of the most famous contributors to atheism over the years, but here are a few more important ones. Bertrand Russell, Nobel laureate, uh, pacifist, chair of the Indian League, and author of Principles of Mathematics, Why Men Fight, and The Problems of Philosophy, among many others. I think I read The Problems of Philosophy in high school, and I can't remember a darn thing about it, honestly. It didn't really make much of an impact. I haven't. Then we have Ayn Rand. Big name there, author of the overrated Atlas Shrugged, and in our opinion, underrated Fountainhead, as well as the creator of Objectivism, definitely an atheist. Albert Camus is another one, a big name in the philosophy and artistic creed of absurdism. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature at age 44. He is the second youngest person to ever do that. Famous works of his include The Myth of Sisyphus, great story. Uh, the Stranger, The Plague, and The Fall. Some of those are on my reading list coming up. The Myth mm. of Sisyphus is really good, though. Uh, John Stuart Mill, a utilitarian and member of British Parliament, he wrote an early work of feminism called The Subjection of Women. John Dewey is another one. He's a progressive uh, advocate, or he was, uh, for the improvement and democratization of public education. He was a social and cultural engineer, and that's putting it lightly. David Hume, uh, an empiricist, skeptic, and naturalist from the 18th century, he rejected the miracles and uh, the argument from design and was pretty controversial for his day and age. Inspired Immanuel Kant, so that tells you a little bit about him, wrote A Treatise of Human Nature. And then Max Stirner, author of The Ego and Its Own, another one on my list. A famous sketch of the side profile of Stirner, uh, of his head, was done by Friedrich Nietzsche. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, not Nietzsche, but uh, Friedrich Engels who was a BFF of Karl Marx and co-wrote the Communist Manifesto. The sketch is meme-worthy for resembling Beavis and Butthead. Have you seen the picture? I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if if Mike Judge um, based those characters on that picture, but the resemblance is uncanny, and, and they're separated by about 150 years. It's incredible. So now 
Let's ask a big question. Are humans born atheist or do they become atheist? Is religious belief or lack thereof a matter of nature or nurture? Okay. I'd say if you use our definitions from earlier, nobody is born a theist nor an atheist. Babies are agnostics, if you want to characterize them, in that they don't know. In fact, they don't know much of anything. <laughs> Fair. Agnosticism is the default position. I'd agree with that. I'd say yeah. that's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, because I, I was doing some research on Google on this question. All of the atheist bloggers are like, of course, all babies are atheists. It's because they define atheists as a lack of belief in God. Yeah, not a positive uh, af- like a positive position of, oh, I believe God does not exist. Yeah, a baby can't even think about that. No, so, yeah, a baby doesn't know. Baby's not like, I reject the premise of God. <laughs> but I, I would say, however, that belief in God or the divine is natural considering that most cultures throughout history have had some form of religion. And most of them were animists or polytheists, so they don't believe in the God referenced in Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, but it's still a belief in the divine and the gods, if you will. To go beyond simple theism requires nurture. Uh, This is logical because divine revelation would have to be done identically to everyone in order for everyone to believe the same thing. Because if it happened in the past, like it it wasn't a personal experience for you. Yeah. So it has to be relayed to people through generations. Would you agree with that? I, I would agree. Uh, and I think um, that's pretty pretty standard for all religions, whether they have an oral tradition or a you know actual written book or written scrolls or however, you, however they communicate it. They do have to communicate it to people uh, in order to spread the word like – with people who are alive right now or to newer generations that are coming up. Yeah, absolutely. So the going back to your point earlier about saying that um, religion is only faith, I, I strongly disagree. Uh, the first Vatican Council in the 1870s uh, declared that belief in God could be accomplished through reason, through reason alone, but that many, if not most, would not be able to come to that conclusion due to lack of time, low intelligence, not asking the right questions, et cetera. So it's, there cannot be a contradiction between reason and faith in the Christian tradition because they all come from the one source, which is God. And God can't lie. You know, God can't, like two, something true and something not true cannot be, uh, they cannot exist at the same time. Let me see if I understand you right. Are you saying that God couldn't, in his infinite goodness, could not give man a faulty uh, reason, basically. They no, could, uh, he could not give us a brain that could not conceive of or understand his goodness. Is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, like, if he gave us the capacity for reason, that capacity must lead us to him. Not must, but can. But can, okay. Because uh, reason is corrupted, corruptible. I mean, just look at all the philosophies of the world. You know, philosophy was, you know, like... Uh, secular philosophy was all based in reason, and reason was perfect, and everyone, all the secular people would believe the same thing. But exactly. every, I mean, but not every philosopher is, you know, Marxist. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you if you put two philosophers in the same room that are not re- that are secular. I don't think any two would agree fully on everything. Uh, probably they would agree on very little. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, so some people may say, well, 
religion is taught, therefore it's it's not true because nobody would naturally would naturally believe like in all these things that religions claim. I would retort and I'd say, uh, is advanced mathematics a matter of nature? And the va- the vast majority of people would not discover it if it wasn't taught to them. In fact, that that argument is just a complete an attempted refutation of education in general. Mm-hmm. So the same thing could be said about history. In fact, it's almost an identical um, identical argument from religion to history, as in people who would have no natural inclination of what the past was without being taught it in history. You wouldn't know the Franco-Prussian War happened, you know, 150 years ago or whatever, without nice, somebody nice telling you. Yeah, yeah, it's not intuitive. Like, oh, I just happened. To, I just know that the Germans made it into Paris <laughs> in the 1870s. <laughs> yeah, and and I would like to add to that um, that if you work your way back, eventually, who taught the teachers? Right. The, yeah. There have there has to have been someone who thought about religion or thought about God first uh, out in the nature, out in the wilderness or whatever. So, yeah, the people do have that natural drive. I mean, we have religion, so, yes, people people naturally at some point in the past uh, decided that that's what they wanted. They wanted to ask questions, and, and that's what they did. Yeah, so the idea that all true things can be discovered through personal experience is impractical and flawed. Uh, would you agree or disagree with any of my statements? I'd agree, or, and I would. Um, I'd like to add on the topic of whether or not we're born atheists. A little, a little anecdote, I guess, from some research uh, video I saw from National Geographic, and what the video showed was uh, chimpanzees versus human children. Okay, now chimpanzees and human children. Uh, they're capable of some of the same things, but obviously the human children are capable of language and complex communication skills that the chimps are not, but that's not really what they were testing here. So what these researchers did was they took a box that was opaque and it had a treat inside it. And so they showed it to the chimpanzee and they showed it to the human children. And what the researcher did was they performed a... I guess you could call it like an intricate sort of dance, a sort of operation that looked sort of like magic, you know, tapping on it and doing different things, operations uh, to the box, and then finally opening up the place where the treat was. And so the chimps and the children were both shown that, and then they had to replicate it in order to get the treat. Then they brought out a similarly shaped box, except this one was clear, and they did the same test. What they found was that the chimps could easily see that none of the operations done by the researcher had anything to do with the treat. They would just open it up, eat the treat, boom, no need to do all these other complex operations. But what they found was that the children followed what the researcher did. Even though they could see clearly in the box, all they had to do was open the drawer and take out the treat. The point of that research and what they they kind of brought to the attention of people was that there is something about humans that, well, there's many things that separate us from the animal kingdom, but one of the most important things is that we are willing to suspend certain beliefs that in our daily life that we would just kind of take for granted and and perform certain motions 
activities uh, simply for their communal benefit. You know, we are capable of doing these operations, even though maybe they don't necessarily have a direct effect on whether we get the treat or not or whether we uh, see immediate response right now, but we, we go to church and we pray and we do these things communally. It brings us closer together, even though the the benefits of it are not always direct right then and there, boom. So I guess the point I'm, I'm trying to make is that I agree uh, that religion comes naturally to human societies. Obviously, like you said, we see it all around the world. And I think that little video showing the difference between chimps and humans shows that there is an inherent part of us that likes certain traditions. It likes to go through certain motions and the, it, it brings us together and that's what helps us survive. So at the end of the day, religion is a means of survival. It brings people together and when people are brought together, they become stronger and are able to fight off enemies. So from a, the group standpoint, I definitely agree. Now on, a real, on an individual basis everybody's different some people are more uh, prone to leaning towards religion other people are not obviously we have two guys in this room who are very different uh, so one leans one way one leans the other but it's it's on an individual basis but in general I would say that definitely human beings move towards religion I hope you're not trying to remove agency from your decision by saying you're less inclined to be religious, saying, oh, I'm just, I was born this way, if you will. Uh, I think part of it is that that's not, certainly not the whole story. Sure, people have, you know, you may be like, oh, man, I, I tend to pick up habits, you know, bad habits. You know, I, I'm more likely to smoke than you or something. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't quit or, or something like that. So what I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I may gravitate towards one thing, you may gravitate towards the other, but you could not gravitate towards it if you wanted to and vice versa. Um, but from a, me, from me personally, as far as atheism goes, I, um, you know, I, I go over these, these ideas and these things a lot in my head. And at the end of the day, uh, they're just, the, the religious arguments are just unsatisfying to me. And I guess that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Maybe a problem with you, not the arguments. I'm not saying that there's a, a problem or not a problem, or that it's a, a defect. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying I, I was born this way, like you said, but um, it seems like despite all of my efforts to really think about it, I can't seem to to buy it. I can't seem to buy religion. Maybe one day I'll change, but for the moment, uh, I, I haven't I haven't committed. So I guess I'm some I'm part of the sheeple. In your, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I wouldn't paint it like that. You know, you could talk about wolves and sheep, but let, let, let's go on onto that little sidetrack for just a moment. Um, I was thinking about this yesterday when we were preparing the notes. Think about an ecosystem. All right. All sheep doesn't work. All wolves doesn't work. Mostly wolves quickly turns into all wolves doesn't work. The only way you can have a balanced ecosystem is if you have mostly sheep and some wolves. Now, let's forget about, you know, oh, you're a sheeple, you're a wolf, you're aggressive. Forget about all that. In an ecosystem, there has to be a balance. All right? Too much of any one thing is bad. So in my opinion, we need uh, the proper balance that actually allows society to progress is mostly religious people 
and there has to be a small number of non-believers, skeptics, atheists. There has to be that, that magic ingredient, that magic balance, because it, for whatever reason, if you have too much of any one of those, things tend to uh, not, not work out as well or, and not be as efficient. We, we see problems in society. We see violence. We see upheaval. And as we'll get to in a little bit, uh, when we talk about the notable attempts at creating an atheist society, if you try to purge religion, uh, it's, it's bad news. It's like trying to remove all of the food in an ecosystem. You know, the, the predators need to have prey, and prey need to have predators. It's a balancing act. So you're saying you're a predator. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> no, no. For the record, I am not a predator. If FBI is listening, I am not a predator. I, but you get what I'm saying. I like the analogy. I just disagree with your characterization of who's who's sheep and who's a wolf. Y'all can be wolves. I don't care. No, I don't mean it like that. I mean oh. that I don't think it's necessary to have atheists or non-religious people. I would. I, I like your analogy, but I would like maybe Pete likes really intelligent people could be the wolves, people who innovate or whatever. It doesn't have to be just skeptics. So I would say. But don't you think that there need to be naysayers and, and and people who challenge the status quo in every society, even if only to make the people who uphold the status quo reaffirm to the average people why the status quo exists? I'm not against the naysayers. I just disagree with the thesis that has to be atheists. It could just be, you know, generally people who like to rock the boat, like Socrates type people, not atheists, but, mm-hmm. you know, like to see how things can be better. Not just people happy with the status quo, people who want to who want to improve. Mm-hmm. So you believe that a world without atheists would be okay? Of course I do. Would it be perfect? There's uh, no well, such thing as a perfect world. Okay, maybe that's 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 wrong to ask. Would it be uh it would be you're saying it would be superior to what we have now? Oh, well, yeah, of course I I mean, if everyone was Catholic, it would be the best. If everyone was a practicing Catholic, of course. Well, I, I am about to argue here in the next few minutes how if everybody was atheist, it would be hell on earth, quite literally. So I would say even from my own, from my, like from my own standpoint, I wouldn't want a whole world full of people who think like me in that, in that regard, in, in regards to religion. I think that's bad news. Now, if everybody was Catholic, that might be feasible for a short time, but obviously we see that, you know, with every religion there have been schisms and schisms and all that, and there have obviously been them, uh, you know, in, in Catholicism. So there are always people who are, you know, rocking the boat from one angle or another, whether it be within the religion itself or from outside of it. But you need those forces. I don't. I'm, I don't agree that you need them. I agree that they're always going to be there. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not going to say schisms are a positive thing or, no, or like yeah. Muslims I mean, invading know. Europe is a good thing. That's that's true, yeah. It it will always happen, but it's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I'd have to think think more on that. I'm definitely not gonna go out there promoting it. We've got enough of we got enough atheists in the world. I think we're pretty good. We're we're a little bit oversaturated. Now let's talk about that oversaturation and the most infamous attempt to create an atheist society. The 20th century saw several nations attempt to purge religion and longtime religious traditions from their countries totally. But it is important to note that this act necessarily created a vacuum. When you outlaw certain beliefs en masse, it becomes necessary to replace those beliefs with something else. 
preferably a strict dogma that reinforces the ideology of the revolutionaries or the party, group, or ethnicity seeking power. This usually results in the form of state worship or a situation where the government is placed at the head of uh, any and all remaining religious institutions or the formation of a completely new pseudo-religion. While Nazi Germany and Maoist China were responsible for serious crackdowns on religious liberty and creative, albeit evil, reframing of various religions to fit their needs, Soviet Russia takes the gold medal for most audacious attempt at eliminating all religion. The story of Russia's love affair with atheism is long and complicated, but we'll give you the important bits. Before World War II, or I'm sorry, before World War I, uh, Russia was a monarchy, with the Russian Orthodox form of Christianity being the dominant religion. Dissatisfaction with Russia's performance in uh, the First World War gave growing socialist political factions the chance they needed to secure power. In 1917, the Tsar and the entire monarchical system of government was violently overthrown. Russian parliament set up a provisional government at the state level, while the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, assumed regional and local power, gaining support from the industrial proletariat and the army whose interests they represented. After maintaining uh, this division of power for some months, the Bolsheviks finally overthrew the provisional government as well in the now infamous October Revolution. Urban workers and militants took over Petrograd, and in the reshuffling, the Bolsheviks relocated the capital to Moscow, where it remains. But they weren't out of the woods yet. The counter-revolutionary White Army challenged the socialists, leading to a civil war which lasted until 1922 when the Bolsheviks emerged victorious. Now that power had been won, though, power had to be kept. Easier said than done. Bolshevik political leaders and intelligentsia were true believers in Marxist philosophy, and they understood that the formation of a truly classless society, a communist utopia, could not be achieved through simple political reform. What was needed was a radical change in culture. Every government is made of people, and if you want to change the government permanently, you have to change the people permanently. It became clear that the former traditions, religious teachings, rites of passage, the holidays, various rituals associated with birth, life, and death, folk medicine, marriage, family ties, religiously mandated gender roles, and all other acts of observance would prevent party policy from being fully accepted. Communism required the participation of all involved to achieve its ends. So long as there were alternatives to this new system, there would be resistance. Religion had to disappear for the Bolshevik ideal to be realized. So how did they try to uproot it? They never outlawed religion completely, but over time they made practicing religion much more difficult. Here are some examples. In January 1918, a decree was made by Lenin to officially separate church and state because it was an integral system before that with the Tsar. Mm -hmm. It was uh, these three pillars were uh, Russian nationalism, um, orthodoxy, orthodox church, and the last one. Oh, we'll come back to yeah. that one. We'll find it. We'll find it. But basically the Orthodox Church was embedded in the government structure. Yes, that's yep. for sure. So after the October Re Revolution, the church, formerly helmed by the Tsar and the state at large, essentially became Bolshevik property. Its own newspaper was proofed by the KGB before being published. Positions of clergymen were changed according to the preferences of state authorities. Though curriculum and admissions at, the, at its seminaries were subject to the veto of authorities, some clergymen and bishops became KGB informers. Now, I will say this has this has some modern 
um, parallels in China. Uh, in that, let's see, in China today, the the Pope just allowed there was a state church and that was not really holding Catholic dogma and it, teaching communism and stuff. And there was an underground Catholic church oh. that and previously before the last year or two, the, the Catholic church officially recognized the underground church as the real church. But really? then, Pope, the, yeah, but then Pope Francis made a deal with the Chinese government to like make the, the official Chinese state church, the, the real ones and like consecrated the bishops and stuff. And a lot of people saw it as a betrayal of, hmm. of the real underground church. And now I think it's backfiring in that like the, the Catholic church has very limited freedom now, now that the state is running it. So yeah, like priests advocating communism, of course, like, and what else are you going to expect from them? Yeah, really? Yep. So going back, uh, the League of Militant Atheists, otherwise translated as Union of the Godless. Now it, that's, yeah, that's a metal band name if I've ever heard one. Yeah. They formed and existed for about 20 years. They're composed of urban workers, soldiers, academics, and youths from the Komsomol. The organization was composed of about 3.5 million members as of 1941. President of the League said in 1934 that the reason state atheism has, hadn't worked before was that it wasn't scientific enough. Coming from the same, coming from the same regime under Stalin that denied genetics because it went against communist ideology. Yeah. Um. Now that, be, not being scientific enough, sounds familiar. Perhaps that yeah. wasn't real communism. That wasn't real so science. Trust the science. Trust the science. All of you out there, trust the science. Yep. The League planned to secularize all of Russia by 1937 and even managed to get a religious question added to the census for the same year. Uh, documents which survived the war and the disbanding of the League a few years later reveal that only about 60% of comrades admitted to being religious. That's among the whole population, right? Uh, I believe so, yes. I would imagine that more than uh, 60% would be atheists if it was among party members. Oh, yeah, they yeah. definitely. And knowing that the others were watching their back and, yeah. and, you know, trying to look at what they were writing, they for sure would have answered that they were all atheists. Now, this 60% religious rate was much higher than the League and Stalin had hoped, so the questions never reappeared on the census. <laughs> they were a little embarrassed. I mean, it was like 90-something percent when they in 1917, so I guess yeah. that's, quote, progress on their end still. Um. But this does reveal a dramatic loss of overall religiosity in Soviet Russia, considering nearly all of Russians were Orthodox at the turn of the century with a sizable Jewish minority. And just a little factoid, fun fact, that the St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow mm -hmm. was an atheist museum for a lot of the Soviet Union. They just turned it into a, a museum extolling atheism. Wow. Under Putin, I think, or, or Boris Yeltsin, it was reinstated as an Orthodox church. Okay, so right now, if you go there, it's an Orthodox yes. church. Okay, yes. for a while it was wow, like a shrine to atheism. Yeah, they <laughs> that was such a <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that they're was they're not so full a good, of themselves, you know. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to be funny, I guess. Now I did remember the third tenet. It was like absolute monarchy. Oh, okay, that makes yep. sense. And even religious leaders were forced or coerced into supporting the league. Orthodox priests. Um, were executed by the tens of thousands or sent to gulags. Churches were ransacked or burned, and the valuables and artifacts within 
were either seized to fund the state or sold by soldiers or officers for personal gain. Solzhenitsyn details uh, at least one such story in the Gulag Archipelago. Great read, by the way. Everybody out there listening, go read that. Religious imagery was overshadowed by communist propaganda in every available space, posters, statues, slogans, banners, etc. Or, in some cases, religious iconography was destroyed to make room for said propaganda. In 1929, the Soviet calendar was changed so that the work week became a five-day week, with the sixth day off, so that people would be forced to work on Sundays. This served to dissociate, uh, I'm sorry, disassociate the faithful from the Christian uh, liturgical schedule. Uh, neither were Sundays off observed in labor camps. Uh, you didn't get much time off for anything in labor camps. <laughs> Slaves usually don't. Yeah. <laughs> Also in 1929, laws on religious associations were passed, which were quite extensive, too extensive to detail here, but they limited the ability of citizens to practice religion, uh, especially publicly, in almost every imaginable way. Yeah, there are some stories of people who lived in the the Eastern Bloc who would have to like save all they could for the week so they could buy a bus ticket to travel to the nearest church that was like an hour away. Goodness gracious. And they'd have to... Do it in secret and all this nonsense. But why do some societies abandon religion? It may be tempting to say that science is the cause of religion's demise. And while this is fairly true, it's not the complete story. There are also competing philosophies which many people adopt. For example, political philosophies derived from Marx, including Marxism, communism, and socialism, are inherently hostile to religion in that they they oppress the proletariat to keep them down. Um, In addition, there are philosophies such as relativism and nihilism, which assume that God does not exist. Relativism is defined as, quote, a theory that knowledge is relative to the limited nature of the mind and the conditions of knowing, or more accurately, accurately for our discussion, a view that ethical truths depend on the individuals and groups holding them. So these are, this is very rampant in our culture among all groups of people in saying that, well, that's, that's their culture. That's, that's just their, their morality. There's no objective morality to these people. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Joe Biden said something to that effect about the Chinese um, interning the Uyghur Muslims. So, yeah, there's a lot of relativism about these days. Right. And uh, nihilism is defined as, quote, a viewpoint that traditional values and beliefs are unfounded and that existence is senseless and useless, or a doctrine that denies any objective ground of truth and especially of moral truths. It's similar uh, to relativism, except it just adds in a component of despair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That there's, like, all traditions and everything are just man-made. There's no truth to them. Just do what you, like, live by your own standards. Do whatever, man. Do whatever, man. And additionally, science is, in fact, often seen as mutually exclusive to religion. Uh, This view is held and endorsed by fundamentalist Christians who hold that the Bible is the only source of truth, also known as sola scriptura. Uh, And they reject much of the ideology and beliefs surrounding modern science. So they're kind of feeding into the what the atheists believe about religion. Like, oh, it's entirely faith. Don't abandon reason, which is what Martin Luther said also to abandon reason and rely on faith alone. Really? Sola fide. Interesting. I I don't know. um, I'd have to think on that a little bit. He called reason a, a whore. 
that anyone could use it to their own advantage. Uh, possibly. I don't know. Yeah, I guess in some ways he's not wrong there. Everyone yeah. can use it. Now, many see the conflict between fundamentalist Christianity, which they assume is either all of Christianity or the most biblical version of it. And they see that they're... They see a conflict between this form of Christianity and science and see a fight between superstition and reason. And who do you think they're going to side with if that's how it's presented? Uh, either blind faith or trusty reason. Yeah. Yeah. However, they, the uh, secular people also have some blame and that uh, many non-religious people subscribe to scientism, which is an exaggerated trust in the efficacy of the methods of natural science applied to all areas of investigation, as in philosophy, the social sciences, and the humanities. It's, it's what Richard Dawkins did in his book, The God Delusion, especially when it came to the five ways. Uh, he thinks that science can explain everything. In layman's terms, science is, like I said, the belief that science can explain everything. But how do you deduce this conclusion using only science and the scientific method? I would say um, it is an assumption that cannot be proven by the scientific method. The assumption being that that only science can only science can discover everything. Yes, and how do you where do you get that conclusion from? You have to use philosophy to to get to that conclusion. Yeah, you would have to use. You philosophy. can do an experiment to see how reliable science, like the scientific method, is, <laughs> and that science is the end all and be all of everything. Yeah, you can't really use the method to study the method. Yeah. In addition, many people simply abandon the dominant religion of their society and they become disenchanted with religion in general as a result. Some general objections to Christianity are as follows. That the quote, one, the the God of the New Testament is cruel and unjust. Uh, the new or the old? Did I say new? Uh, you said new, but oh. yeah... I, the God of the Old Testament is cruel yeah. and unjust. That's more common. Some people might say that the new is cruel and unjust, but I, I think more people, yeah, would say probably old. Yeah. And secondly, science disproves, disproves claims made in the Bible. I'm not going to address all of these. I just want to give reasons people have. Sure. Third, the Bible is bigoted against women, LMNOPs, other religions, and other groups. Fourth, Christianity has caused a number of bad things to transpire think the Crusades, Inquisitions, fall of the Roman Empire, which was Edward Gibbon's thesis, delaying of scientific and technological progress, etc. Many of these are pushed and were pushed by Protestants in the past to slander the Catholic Church, by the way. Ironically, they're being used by non-Christians now. (laughs) Christianity inhibits my freedom and doesn't want me to be happy. Every religion is pretty much the same. Why limit myself to one set of dogmas? All religions are man-made and a product of the cultures they derived from. Many people also don't place any importance on these deeper questions. Their apathy makes them functional atheists. They may may have been the people who said nothing in particular on that Mm -hmm. study. Um, The question of religion is potentially the most important topic you can think about. If If I'm right, it's the most important topic there is. I think at the end of the day it is, yeah. Because it, it is your foundation for all of your belief, presumably. And the and it determines your fate forever. This could be true. It could be true. Now let's uh, demonstrate 
that widespread atheism is bad news. We'll just go over a few short things right here. People will find something to worship. If not God, then the state. We've seen that play out many, many times. And as we just talked about in Soviet Russia, um, that's what they were trying to get people to do. Is you know The state was trying to get people to abandon religion and worship them. And whereas you have in Christianity, let's use it as an example, a loving, benevolent God who won't steer you wrong, who you are supposed to serve, but it's not like you're a slave. It's a voluntary thing you go into and you accept him as your creator, your savior, etc. And uh, he helps you out. And if you, if you dedicate your life to him, he will reward you in the afterlife. The state can't do any of that. And they won't. They'll throw you in a gulag or they'll shoot you in the back of the head. Bottom line. You could also worship science, as many do. You could. And then you'll be experimented on and then shot in the back of the head. <laughs> like uh, believe the science? Yeah, believe the science, trust the science. I think I've heard it said, why would you believe in science? Science is something that's based on you know, scientific method and observation alone. It's not something you need to believe in or trust. It's something that has to be proven. So it just it kind of gives itself a way that some people just worship the idea of science. Yes. Yeah, I, I would say that's true. You, you can't really believe it like you would believe other things. Fair. A no religion in uh, your country, your society, means you have a weaker community. Like we mentioned earlier, it's a bond between people. You know, a shared communal activity and belief. And without that, that's just one uh, one less link in the chain, I guess. So, uh, you know, one, one more thing that can go wrong, one more thing uh, that is a flaw that can be exposed or exploited by the enemies of your culture, which are all around you, especially in ancient times. They were always trying to get the resources that you had. And uh, a community without a strong religion uh, was... Laid to waste. What else is going to get people out of the house on the weekends? You know, the, we got so many distractions these days, and we've talked about that before. It's almost like we're a broken record, but getting out there and interacting with your community and doing something that is yeah, getting involved in something that's bigger than yourself is much better, a much better use of your time than binging, playing video games. Playing video games. That's true. Religion is a gateway to learning history. What do you think of that, Evan? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I really agree with it. I'm glad it was included here. Um, I've learned a lot about the Catholic Catholic history, and it has actually, by peripheral uh, history, I've learned a lot. Yeah, and, and by extension, Roman history, and yeah. by extension, Greek history. So yeah. there's, there's a big expanding view there once you get into religion, if you really get into it. And, and, you know, the, the Bible itself, you know, it's uh, the root word is basically library, right? I yeah, mean, books, library. Yeah, in, uh, in Spanish, biblioteca yeah. is library. So, yeah, obviously you can see the, the similarities there because the Bible is a collection of books, collection of stories. So And all those stories tell, you know, genealogical type stories of who begat who. And, and it talks about different cultures, some of which are not around anymore. Yeah, um, also if you study theology— not just history. It's it's a really good way to get your feet wet with philosophy. Yes, agreed. Uh, self-reflection and self-discovery, those are tenets of, of basically all religions. And uh, that's a big part of 
of Christianity. Maybe elaborate on that, Evan, uh, as the the resident uh, resident expert on that. But what what kind of self reflection, self discovery is going on in Christianity? I'd say within non Protestant Christianity, it's very strong. There there's a reason there's such a thing as Catholic guilt. You know, so <laughs> I've heard of that before. Yeah, yeah, that Catholics are always doing a very tough examination of conscience when they do something they feel terrible about it. Uh, which is good to an extent in that it, it makes you realize your faults and mm-hmm. the bad things you've done to others and to yourself and to God ultimately. Which we have all done. Yes. So it it's good to be reflective in that way and to know when you've done wrong. It makes you improve yourself, which is also a way of growing virtue. Um, the four cardinal virtues, which are outside of religion, and the three theological virtues you can grow in, faith, hope, and love. Um, so... It's a really good way of improving yourself, although that is not the ultimate aim of Christianity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, And that, that really leads into this next point, which is that it encourages recognition of personal flaws, like you said, and offers a simple path to correct them. And that simple path is confession. For us, yeah. yeah. Other than that, if you're, if you're Protestant, you can still do that. Um, you just have to recognize what you've done in the past and improve for your own sake. Unless you believe in once saved, always saved, then I guess you're kind of free to do what you want yeah you got the golden ticket right there but you still need to (laughs) recognize well if you don't believe in once saved always saved then you need to uh, recognize your sins and confess them to to god directly and if you're catholic or orthodox you do it to a priest as well yes through a priest it also keeps kids off the street religion keeps the kids uh in a in a community and in a uh, in a structure that can teach them these things we're talking about, you know, history, teach them about God, teach them about how to self-reflect. And these are important things that kids need to be learning because they're soft skills that uh, you know, at, at, even just from a secular point of view, looking at it as what, what can religion do for kids? Well, it can uh, improve them and help them mature. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. Kids are naturally selfish. All people are naturally very selfish and uh, Religion can be a good way to be less selfish, mm-hmm. care more about other people. And that helps in turn build community. Mm-hmm. And lastly, I would say that an atheist society will be conquered by societies with strong religions. That's to me what it always comes back to. That's it's you're going to weaken your society by weakening your religion or eliminating it totally. So what is modern Christianity doing about the rise in atheism in America and Europe? My initial response was basically nothing, Uh, but I thought more about it. Um, Christianity and religion in general continues to decline in America and Europe. It's safe to say that Christendom, which is Christianity embedded in culture and government, is no longer. There have been a variety of different responses to this. The first is to try to make Christianity, quote, relevant by making it more similar to modern Western culture. This can be as simple as making the worship music sound like modern music, but it's always going to be worse and and pretty cringy most of the time. Yes. Um, However, many go further by changing or relaxing their morals to match our culture. You can just look at the many Protestant denominations that have given in to liberalism by supporting same-sex marriage. It's many of them. If you haven't heard, the ironically named United Methodist Church is splitting up over the topic. <laughs> so united. Yeah. One of them is going to be the United Methodist Church. I don't know what the other one's going to be, but it, it was about a half and half vote, and they're splitting in half. 
and they're allowing um, same-sex married um, pastors to lead the churches in the liberal half. Wow. And a lot of other things that would be appalling even to Christians 50 or 100 years ago. Oh, and yeah. Even many within the Catholic Church want the church to change its teaching in this manner to be more, quote, pastoral. So you can take a look at the Pew survey we mentioned earlier for statistics on the Christian laity's views on religious and social issues. Let me just say, it for the most part, excluding evangelicals, there is not much difference between the laity in these different Christian denominations and society at large. Really? So yeah. they are not they are no more conservative than people at large. If any, it's marginal, like a few percent yeah. different. And it was funny, I was looking in the Catholic section and it was like five or ten percent of people who call themselves Catholics don't believe in God. I was just so <laughs> confused. <laughs> they straight up don't believe it wasn't like I don't know. I don't know it was like another ten or fifteen percent. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I don't quite understand that. Yeah. Um, Now, we can say it's clear that a a large portion of the Christians have what you would say mainstream opinions. Yeah. You couldn't even, unless you asked them what their religion was, you you would have no clue what religion they were. You would just assume they, they don't go to church or anything. Now, the second response is to double down on traditional or conservative religious beliefs. This is arguably the reason for the evangelical Protestant movement, which since that the mainstream Protestant denominations were becoming more liberal and institutional. Evangelicals tend to be conservative in both the political and religious sense, and they take a reactionary stance towards culture and science. Additionally, the traditionalist movement within Catholicism seeks to return the Catholic Church to how it was before the Second Vatican Council, which ended in 1965. the epitome of this is the traditional Latin Mass, or the TLM, which was the liturgy in the Latin Rite from the Council of Trent, 1563, to the end of the Second Vatican Council in 1965, so over 400 years. Wow. While the Latin Mass is rare in you know, post-Vatican II land, uh, its popularity is growing, and it was basically, quote, legalized by Pope Benedict XVI in maybe 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, but the Eastern Orthodox churches are not changing much. They've pretty much stayed the same, still got the beards, you know. Although the Russians might say that the Greeks are too liberal. Well, I think that's always been the case. The uh, the, the Greeks have been a little bit, I don't know, they've kind of always been progressive, it seems. You I know, don't... like in antiquity, they, they were kind of on the forefront of some things. I I don't think it's always been true with, within the Orthodox church. Oh, yeah, Greece. within that, yeah, yeah. maybe not. So the third response is the Benedict option, which I mentioned in past episodes. Uh, This comes from the conclusion that society is so corrupt that good Christians must retreat to isolated communities in order to fully live out their faith. It is based on St. Benedict of Nursia, who lived right after the fall of the uh, Western Roman Empire. He's the father of modern monasticism, and he wrote a rule about how the monks had to live. Many argue that monasteries are the reason ancient knowledge survived after the fall of Western Roman Empire. That's probably very true. Yeah, because they were the only ones bothering to write all this stuff down, and they weren't married, so they just worked and, like, wrote stuff down and prayed. Made wine, right? Yeah, they're – well, wine was around before them, but they invented many types of beer and cheese Mm -hmm. and other things because they had to be self-sustaining. They'd have to make their own thing, and they – made themselves stand out by making new products and quality products. 
that was how they stayed afloat. It kind of led to their demise in many cases too. They would just be like very spoiled and rich. I guess so. Yeah, because yeah, they just got so good at what they were doing, and they didn't have to raise a family or anything. So it's just like a bunch of bachelors getting together and hanging out and making moolah. Yeah. Now let me ask you this: uh, that, that just brought some uh, and a very interesting question to my mind. So after the fall of the Roman Empire, there were people who said, "Oh man, this this thing's gonna go on forever. Ain't never gonna fall." And then all of a sudden, uh, due to many many reasons, uh, the Western Roman Empire fell and was completely ransacked, destroyed. These guys, they had already done the Benedict Option thing. They were out there and they were able to preserve a lot of this knowledge. Do you think that something like that will happen in America? Do you think that there there are people who say that oh, America will never collapse, it's, it's great, it'll always be here, whatever. But if it were to collapse, will there be people similar to those guys who will preserve knowledge? It would have to be really bad for this to become prevalent enough to notice. There are, like, Catholic communes around the country, but they're pretty rare and sparse. Yeah. Hmm, I was just thinking about that. I guess when Rome fell, they were so advanced, and everyone else around them was not nearly as advanced. And so I guess there was a lot of knowledge that could very easily be lost. And even if America were to collapse, so to speak, or or have a big war or something— the internet would still exist, and so there would still be knowledge out there. And so it's not like these guys will be pockets of civilization in a completely barren wasteland. Like there will still be other countries who have science and, and history and things like that. I guess it's not quite the same in the modern world, but it's just interesting to think about what, what traditions will be preserved by those type of people when inevitably something bad happens, which it will. I mean, every society collapses. Episode one, go and watch that, Anacyclosis, if you haven't yes, already watched it. Of course. Um, so which of these options do you think would be successful in reviving religion um, the, or the most successful, if any of them? Let's see. We have the Benedict option. We have uh, the relevant option. That's number one. Double like, down on traditional conservative religious beliefs or you said double uh, become more relevant. Yeah. Well, if they keep making that cringy Christian music, that's not going to win anyone over. So I don't think that one's going to work. And you end up just sacrificing your values to the the mob the ever-changing uh uh what what did you say earlier you used the word um mainstream yeah the mainstream is, is kind of always changing and so if you keep trying to keep up with it you're going to become just as bad and, it, and it'll end it up that, that you don't support anything you don't stand for anything so that's not a option option one's not going to work in my opinion number two is a better option but still doubling down on traditional religious beliefs will be tough. You will face a lot of backlash. People have to go into that if they decide to do that, knowing that they will be cut off from people and society at large in a lot of ways. And it may be in ways that we can't even really think about right now, but consider that often um, referenced episode of Black Mirror, that sci-fi show, where it's like the social credit system. And unless you do what everybody else is doing and you act happy and you, you do all the right things, you get a rating. And if people think that you're like an outsider, they'll downgrade you and you don't have access to services. And so that's kind of where we're headed. And if these people want to make a stand on traditionalism, there there are going to be big consequences. Consequences could be economical. I mean, economic consequences. Uh, they could be personal financial consequences and 
there could be consequences we can't even imagine right now, but they will be bad. So that's going to be a tough one. But if that happens, that kind of automatically leads into the third solution, I think. When these people are isolated and just like pushed out of society, they basically force them into the Benedict option anyway. So I think that's the ultimate option there. Not necessarily the best, but it's what's going to happen. Do you think that um, the traditional uh, method number two is it, it would um, attract people who are outside of it in that it's different from the culture? Do you think people who are just fed up with the culture will like things that are so different? Like you've, you've never been to a Latin mass, but it is completely different from everything you've ever done. It's completely different from any Protestant service you've ever been to. People might just go to that and be like, wow, this is so different. I won't differ, you know? They do will. You, do you think that's there's any case for that? Uh it might be a small number of people, but that shouldn't stop us from trying it. Um, I think, yeah. I think there will always be people who will get fed up with with how terrible modern society is. It's getting worse every day, modern culture. And I think, yeah, there is a – at the end of the day, humans – the defining characteristic of mankind is a, a desire to have order. Anybody who can bring order to the chaos – and believe me, there's chaos on the way. You look at the streets of Seattle, streets of Portland. There's chaos out there, and people want order. And so, if a if a religion like Christianity, like Catholicism, can provide that, there will be people who will go to that. They want stability, they want order, they want to have a means of providing for their family. So, yeah, whatever option can provide them that, that's what they'll go for. Now, let's talk about the takeaways. So long as there have been religious people, there have been unbelievers, and that is unlikely to ever change. Atheism may have once been edgy in antiquity, when near-total religious adherence was necessary for the survival of a given people. But in the modern West, it has gone mainstream, though it maintains its edgy branding to make itself more appealing to the internet-addicted, rebellious youth. Atheism doesn't come naturally to most groups or even most people. Most, if not all, attempts to create an atheist society have failed, leading to death, misery, and even mass imprisonment and execution. Science, quote-unquote, alone is evidently not enough of a glue to hold society together, which is one of the main reasons atheism continues to fail as a viable alternative to religion. And I would totally agree with that. It has continued to fail. I have to recognize that. And historically... Math and science have flourished most dramatically in nations with strong monotheistic religions, especially where Christianity is the dominant religion. Hello, the Enlightenment. Hello, the Renaissance. I mean, that happened in, in the Christian West. There's something to be said for that. Okay, so what are our lingering questions? Uh, I'm going to ask you, what, what will become of European nations which are increasingly losing their faith? It gets worse all the time. It does. And, you know, they have a... I guess hmm. they have a migration problem. So that's one thing. That's a, that's an example. There you go of what I was saying earlier. You lose your religion, you will be taken over by some by a group who has a stronger religion. And Islam is a much stronger religion. And and they are becoming a greater and greater um, a force as far as population and as far as their influence in Europe. So I think that's what's going to happen to them. They will be replaced. Now let me ask you. Will there ever be a completely atheist society in the future? What do you mean by that? 
um, uh, a society of science fiction where religion is just seen as some antiquated thing, doesn't exist anymore, everybody's atheist, nobody really thinks about religion. Maybe a given country, but not all over the world, of course. I can see it becoming, well, people will, there will be a vacuum, definitely, and people will either pursue other religions or start worshipping something else, which will cause a disaster. I don't think such a, a society is sustainable, because I think people just have a yearning for something greater. Maybe not enlightened folks like you, but you know, most people have a yearning for something greater than themselves. Uh, I would agree. Most people do. Some people are satisfied with with what they have. But some people do have a yearning for something greater than themselves. I would I would say the only way an atheist society will exist in the future is if mankind, who is naturally I think a religious being, uh, goes the way of the dinosaurs, and all that's left are our machines. We somehow create machines that can that will take our place when we die, when there are no more biological humans and there's only our robots left. I think it's probably safe to say there will be a society of atheists, but that'd be a that'd be a boring, boring society right there. Anyway, that's about the only way I can think of it happening. And now coming my journalist gotcha questions. <laughs> Why do you just, why do you subscribe to a belief system that has such negative results on humanity? If atheism has bad, bad outcomes for society, won't there be bad outcomes for individual atheists too? It's a great question, and I think the difference uh, between groups and individuals is something we have to consider here. Uh, obviously, we've as we've mentioned, both you and I agree that groups of people uh, want and need religion, and they develop religions. But individuals you know, are not the same as groups, and individuals are much more varied. And so um, I, I am an atheist because, like I said, I'm just not satisfied with the arguments for religion. Uh, now, I don't support widespread atheism because I do recognize that on a large scale it is bad. But again, going back to the ecosystem kind of theory – in, in, a, in small quantities, it is necessary. And so with that being said, with that being my belief, I don't see a problem with individuals being atheists on a very small scale. Now, we don't want to promote this to very large, and we certainly don't want to ban anything. We don't want to ban religion. Though we, that's not what we want to do. So you say that atheists has bad outcomes for society and in and, and, at large, you know, it does. In, in large quantities, it does. But in small quantities, that skepticism, I think, plays a key role in keeping uh, keeping the arguments fresh, keeping the debate going. There needs to be debate. There needs to be intellectual diversity. Without that, there's too much dogma. We don't need too much atheist dogma. We don't need too much religious dogma. We need a healthy balance. Now, that balance isn't 50-50. That balance is probably more like 90-10. Or maybe the golden 80-20, 80% religious, 20% atheist. That's even too much, I think. But we need definitely an overwhelming amount of religion and a very small minority of people who totally disagree. Now that's, that's my opinion. That's my, my stance on it. Now, how many more bloody revolutions will have to happen before we learn that lesson, before we learn that we should not try to abandon religion? I don't know. You, you tell me. Uh, I don't need a bloody revolution to change my mind. 
<laughs> well, I don't either. I've, I've, you know, I've learned about them. And thankfully, I haven't had to live through them. Um, but it seems like even people who have lived through them and even people who ha- are closer in like time and age to having seen these things, they still don't believe it. They still don't they still don't understand. You know, it's like all the horrors of communism. You still got communists out there in America. And it's just because people in strangely in a in a world of mass information and the ability to educate yourself better than any other group of people in the uh, in history uh it seems like we're just dumber than ever and it's just because we have so many ways to bury our heads in the sand and still somehow manage to survive by working our nine to five and so yeah uh until people actually start learning from history the bloody revolutions will continue no i did not put this question here (laughs) but (laughs) daniel will you ever open your heart to christ who knows? Yeah. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what uh, what God has in store for me if he exists. But if God exists, I think I, sometimes I jokingly say this, and you'll you'll take issue with this. I, you know, you say, why are you an atheist? Well, ask God, you know, and you say that would rob me of my agency that I could choose to not be. Um, I don't know. I think it's not that the it's not that I'm, you know, I don't have the content in my head, but it's just like the way. The way I see it, it's it's not it's not an issue of the information that's in my brain. It's the way my brain works, the way it has processed it. I've seen the same information as you. I have seen the same arguments as you, and yet I come to a different conclusion. So, what can you draw from that? Is it just the way I am, you know? And if it is the way I am, I was made presumably by God. So, did God make me a doubting Thomas? Did He make me somebody who? would have a harder time believing these things maybe he did so maybe i've just got to work harder or maybe at the end of the day i just can't be convinced well if you can't be convinced that's stubbornness that's true admitting you like i won't be convinced i'm not saying that uh, you know if if i really genuinely saw something that i could not explain a, a religious event and that that may be one of the main reasons why i am what I am, because I have never felt, so so to speak, the hand of God. I've never felt a divine presence. I've never been, I've never experienced something that I can't rationalize, can't explain. I've never seen a miracle. Maybe one day I will. I can't say that I won't, but so far I haven't seen one. I'll leave you with this quote from Galen Strawson as food for thought. Now, to be fair, I don't agree with his assessment. I think it's it's a little rude. But I'm going to leave it with you anyway because we're supposed to challenge people's ideas here. Facts don't care about your feelings, right? <laughs> so here it is. Galen Strawson said, It is an insult to God to believe in God. For on the one hand, it is to suppose that he has perpetrated acts of incalculable cruelty. On the other hand, it is to suppose that he has perversely given his human creatures an instrument, their intellect which must inevitably lead them, if they are dispassionate and honest, to deny his existence. It is tempting to conclude that if he exists, it is the atheists and agnostics that he loves best, among those with any pretensions to education, for they are the ones who have taken him most seriously. Yeah, I'm not going to let you have the last word with that quote (laughs) and just not respond to it. Sure, respond. There's a lot going on there that I need to address. 
first of all, how does he know what is cruelty and what is morality? He gets it from the society he lives in, which is Christian. He he inherited some Christian morality, and he applies it, ironically, to use against God in a perverse way. Now, he says it's inevitable that their intellect will lead them to be an atheist, which I disagree with. I outlined my reasons before. And I just, the fact that he would love atheists and agnostics the most is just comical. I, I don't see how that's true. Someone who, someone who disparages the very idea of him or just doesn't even take a stance at all is his best friend. I, I just don't get it. I disagree. I will say this. I I don't like how he paints. He paints it by saying that if you have an intellect, you'll be an atheist. Yep. Otherwise, you're a dummy. And I think that's wrong. They're very intelligent people who are religious, very intelligent people who are atheists, and vice versa. You know, they're very dumb people who believe in both. But what I do think is interesting in this quote is that he offers this take that maybe God doesn't agree with our assessment of him. Maybe God is a trickster, a jokester, and maybe he has made this whole universe as a gigantic gotcha joke, some sort of prank. You know, it. I think it's a very human reaction to assume that there is order, that if God exists, that we can understand his workings, or at least some of it. It's a very human reaction to assume that we can know God and his intentions and even really anything about him. Maybe we don't know a dang thing about God. Maybe he does exist, but he's nothing like we imagine. I think maybe that's kind of what he was trying to get at. Maybe he actually loves atheists and agnostics. I don't know. Uh, It could be, but it's hard to tell. You can't really pull out a ruler and measure it, right? (laughs) It's God. We can just leave that be for now. We'll let it be. Okay, we're not going to do hot takes this week due to the extreme length of this episode so far. So that's all for today's show. Join us again next week for more ancient wisdom.